Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Uh, Nancy, welcome back. It's good to partner with you in ministry again. Uh, when she was walking in, yeah, give her a round of applause. When she... Uh, when she was walking in, she's like, it's my second week back. I'm going to wing it a little bit. And I was like, don't worry, me too. <laughs> um, anyways, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6, and uh, we will read together. <clears throat> this is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Amen? I want to begin by saying we're going to talk about a lot of uh, kind of intense issues this morning. And Paul addresses a series of different groups of people in different situations in life, many of which I am not personally acquainted. And I can imagine that uh, as you were here listening on, you could look at me and think, ah, look at this young guy talking to me about all these serious issues. And I just want to reiterate to you, my goal this morning, and really my goal every morning, is not to convey to you ideas I have from personal experience. The goal is to convey to you what the word of God says. That's what preaching is. If I were just standing up here telling you how I felt about things, we would all be wasting our time. So today, we're going to cover some serious issues, but I want to remind you, my goal is not just to tell you what I think. Sometimes I will. But primarily my goal is to point to what the word of God says. Amen? Okay, how many of you, I want to begin with a question. How many of you... Wish you could go back to yourself at some point in the past when you were younger and say, relax. Just chill out. Just relax. It's going to be okay. Relax. I think about little things in my life that I thought were uh, world-changing or life-ending. It turns out they were not. <laughs> Still today, my wife reminds me that little things are not world-changing or life-ending. How many of you guys know uh, Pastor Bruce, Bruce Bailey? Anybody know him? Good. So Pastor Bruce has the spiritual gift of chill. 
It's amazing. It's amazing. I feel like I could break into his office one day, just kick the door down and say, Bruce, Bruce, Vikings are attacking the building. What are we going to do? And he'd be like, relax. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Like, How does Bruce, how does he have just like that level of chill? Like, How does he do it? At one is, he probably actually is gifted in that particular category more than I am. Another reason is, and I don't know exactly how old, but Bruce is a little bit older than me. He's experienced more of life. He's seen greater successes and greater failures. His perspective is broader, and it's over a longer period of time. So, so often, we would look back at ourselves when we were 17 or 25 or whatever and say, hey, rel- relax. <laughs> now I'm this much older than this past version of myself, and I can tell you it's going to be okay. When Paul is addressing the church at Corinth and he begins to talk to them about their individual situations in life, he gives them practical commands that are very difficult. He does not encourage them to live the easy life. He instead exhorts them to live the difficult, high calling of faithful Christian living. In order to do this well, He has to root all the things he is going to say in something greater, in something that can provide the Corinthians greater perspective to help them understand that the difficulties or the tensions that they're presently experiencing are insignificant in comparison to the fact that they will exist forever. And and they're also small in comparison to what God has already done for them. He's going to give them difficult advice. And to us, it will sound difficult. But it's all within the perspective, within the context of the gospel itself. So before Paul gets into this place, he begins with what we call the indicatives, describing them theological truths, things that are just true. And he actually begins the letter this way. After his initial greeting, he goes into a thanksgiving, and he says this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Did you guys hear that? God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. At a small scale in my life, When I experience things that feel like setbacks, that feel like failures, that are a source of anxiety, my greatest resource and strength is to be reminded about all the times that God has already provided for me. How many of you know what that's like? The best thing to do is to look back and say, look at all the times that God provided for me in ways that I could not have expected. Paul is taking that premise and he is stretching it out cosmically. He's saying, look at what God has already done in terms of how amazing that thing is. 
He has offered you a new hope and a new grace. Look at all the things he's provided for you now, skills and knowledge and resources, the Holy Spirit's presence with you. And look at what he's going to do, your future. He will sustain you to the end guiltless. He is saying you have a sure hope, you have a sure grace, you have a sure power, and you have a sure future. So then he's going to talk about their lives right now. The first thing that he begins to describe to them is gospel sufficiency in singleness. Gospel sufficiency in singleness. Go back with me to verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul is actually describing to them his own situation. This is one of the reasons we know that at least during Paul's ministry, he was single. We don't know if he was always single, which seems unlikely to us. Perhaps his wife passed away. Maybe when he converted to Christianity, his wife left him. But he describes to them the goodness of the gift he has, which is the gift of celibacy. I just want to pause there for a moment and say Paul, in as plain a terms as I can put them, is saying being single is good. It is exceptional. It can be beautiful and it can be powerful. Paul is very clearly saying something that both to the Corinthians and to us seems countercultural. I want to explain to you how it was countercultural to the Corinthians first. In that time, you were a person who desired to be married so that you could have kids and you could extend your family name, whether you were Jewish or whether you were a Gentile. It was a way you would position yourself in society. It's a way that you would gain social or cultural power. In the Bible, we can go all the way back to the Old Testament. Who were the first two people God created? Adam and Eve. Good job. Adam and Eve. God creates Adam and he has no companion. So he creates Eve because it is not good for a man to be alone. And then he tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful. Multiply and fill the earth. And that was the commission for people in the Old Testament, for Jews, all the way up to the New Testament. And people who are outside of Judaism, Gentiles, even though they didn't have that same command, had similar feelings and ideas about having families and having kids. So the honor that you had, the value that you had, was associated oftentimes with your immediate family and the children that you produced. We can see this in the Gospels. If you go to uh, Luke, Luke 11, we see this. Uh, this is speaking about Jesus. And he said these, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. At that time, this particular woman would have understood that women, not today but back then, found honor in the greatness of the sons that they gave birth to. So this woman sees Jesus, and she's like, man, this guy is doing amazing things. He's teaching powerfully. He's healing. He's multiplying food. He's doing all these amazing things. Now, by extension, because he's so amazing, 
His mother is amazing. So she says, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you and nursed you. And Jesus says, that's actually incorrect. Her value, her value is not dependent on how she relates to her son. Her value is dependent on how she relates to God. So we have this new age now, this New Testament age in which we have a new understanding of family. Who's your family? Brothers and sisters in Christ. How does our family grow? People come to faith. We've redefined what it means to be in a family. Jesus has changed the measure of value. That's how it was countercultural back then. They were told families is the way you increase your honor, and Jesus and Paul are saying that's not correct. Today, we worship at a different altar. It is the altar of romance. We are told that the supreme love, the most important love, is romantic love found in a spouse. Every single piece of media tells us this. Do you guys like romantic comedies? Sorry, do you girls like romantic comedies? <laughs> I've seen a lot of romantic comedies. Not always by choice. I'm pretty familiar with the beats of the genre. And we are too, right? Like at the end, the guy runs through the rain. He gets through airport security or whatever. He finds her right before she gets on a plane. They've just had a fight recently, but he now knows what he really wants, you know. And he, he, he catches her at the last minute, and he, he stops her, and he says, no, 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 I love you. I want to be married to you. And we all know this moment where finally these two people are going to be completed and be whole. Can you imagine if you were watching this? The guy ran in through security. He's like, pouring rain he catches her, he says no i love you i want to marry you and she says i'm sorry i have the gift of celibacy <laughs> like there's a reason we find that so funny and it's because built into our society at almost the ground level is the absurdity of ever really finding happiness without a spouse. I want to tell you that it is one of the most destructive, terrible lies you hear today. We would see a moment like that in a movie where she chooses not to get with this guy and we want to scream at the TV, no, 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 you don't get it. He's giving you everything you need. It's what you want. It'll make you happy. And really, I think the most terrible lie, it will make you complete. If you're here and you're single, whether you've been single for a short time or for a long time, I want you to hear this. You are already complete in Jesus. Already. If you're here and you're married, I want to remind you that single people in our congregation are full and they are full functioning members of our church body and they should be treated as such. Paul's saying, it's good. It's good to be single. It is not less important. It is not less significant. I want to say this lastly to those who are single. Uh, don't waste your singleness. Don't waste it. And I don't mean that in the way that you hear it outside these walls. I don't mean it like, hey, listen, when you get married, party's over. Don't waste your singleness. That's not what I mean. <laughs> be very, very, very clear. What I, what I mean is this. Um, 
you have an opportunity as a single person to convey the beauty and the sufficiency of the gospel in a way that married people cannot. And I'm saying because the Lord, at least right now, has called you to singleness, whether it's for a short time or for a long time, do not waste it. When you're with your unbelieving friends, some of whom are doing whatever it takes to find a soulmate, you can convey the sufficiency of the gospel by proclaiming to them through your words and your actions that you have already found your greatest peace and your greatest joy in Jesus. For those of you who have friends who are single who have thrown themselves into their career, and I'm not saying hard work is a bad thing. I'm saying really thrown themselves into it. They're going to find satisfaction in their work and they're on the grind and they'll do whatever it takes. You have the opportunity to proclaim to them the sufficiency of the gospel by showing them that you are already fully satisfied in Jesus. When you have single friends who do whatever they want with their bodies, you can convey the sufficiency of the gospel by showing them who already owns your body. Do not waste your singleness. Do not waste it. It is a powerful way that you can proclaim the sufficiency of the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul ends this way. He ends this way in verse 9 in this section. He says this, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says, Some have the gift of celibacy. Some do not have the gift of celibacy. In a group this large, there are certainly a handful of people that have come to believe that they have the gift of celibacy. They've decided they want to live that life. I just want to say to you, if you find yourself constantly distracted by sex, you might not have the gift of celibacy. (laughs) Paul is not saying that people who are gifted with celibacy won't struggle with sex. And he's not saying that marriage is to be reduced to sex. He's saying you are called to discern your own gifts. And celibacy is, I think, a particularly difficult one. It is also a particularly powerful one. So consider it seriously. Paul moves on. He moves on from singleness to marriage. He shows us gospel power in marriage. Gospel power in marriage. Read with me in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I... But the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So we're going to talk about divorce for a little bit. Last night, as soon as I said that word, everyone was like, let's not do this, right? I want to just begin by saying this. Before we talk about divorce, I'm going to say this. My goal For those of you who are here and have experienced divorce, either directly or indirectly, it is not to shame you, it is not to attack you, it is not to accuse you. I want to remind you what my goal is, is this. I want to convey to you to the best of my abilities what the word of God says. So that's what I'm going to do. So don't feel attacked, don't feel ashamed, don't feel accused. Today, divorce is common. Probably half or more of the people in this room, in one way or another, have experienced, either directly or indirectly, the pain of divorce. In 1969, California was the first state to bring into law 
a no-fault divorce, meaning people could get divorced without any particular reason. They didn't have to have some sort of injury or reason to show that they could get divorced, which increased the rate of divorce dramatically. I know this from personal experience, but I hear before 1969, divorce wasn't as common. But it's really common now. Something like 50% of people who get married end up in divorce. 50%. That means out of every wedding that you've been to, one out of two. I mean, that's a, that's a staggering number. It was true in Paul's day as well. When he's speaking to this church in Corinth, they are church accustomed to the idea of divorce, either Jewish or Gentile. There were provisions for divorces in their laws, and many of them would take advantage of it. You may have heard Pastor Zach speak last week and talk about the fact that there were people in that congregation that were probably divorced many, many times. And what happened was someone who wanted to get divorced or who was married would weigh something that they valued against something in marriage that prevented them from having that thing. They would do the math, and if they needed to, they would get divorced. And in that day, it was typically financial or, or cultural or having to do with society. We have, we have different reasons typically that we get divorced today. Paul uses two words here. You'll notice in your translations, oftentimes, at least in the one that I use, there was the word separate and the word divorce. Do you guys notice that? Okay. Uh, it's two different words, and the reason why uh, your English translations often translate it as two different words is it's two different Greek words. Um, however, pretty much everyone who studies this agrees that in both cases... Paul is talking about the disillusion of a marriage, actual divorce. When he says separate, he does not mean what we mean when we, when we say separate. He does not mean like maybe the moving apart and the separating of accounts but still being legally married. He actually does mean divorce. And so like there's this question that I'm sure many of you have right now that ends up being kind of at the forefront of things people talk about when they talk about this passage. And the question is this, can Christians get divorced? If so, under what conditions? And if they do, may they be remarried? What I really want to talk about is the power of the gospel in marriage. But I think it's necessary for me to pause here for a second just to talk about Christian divorce. So there are four different camps, four different views on Christian divorce. Here they are here. Uh, divorce and remarriage are never permitted under any circumstances. Two, divorce is permitted under some circumstances but not remarriage. Number three, divorce and remarriage are permitted under some circumstances for divorce and remarriage are permitted under a wide variety of circumstances. Um, so I'm to be honest with you guys, I'm not 100% settled on this issue. I have a leaning, I'm gonna tell you the way I lean strongly, but I'm not 100%, I was talking to Zach this week, like can I say that I'm not 100% settled on an issue? And he's like, yeah, you can say that. And I was like, oh, good, okay. <laughs> I think three, divorce and remarriage are permitted under some circumstances, is the biblical view. Not everyone agrees with me, but I think this is the biblical one. I'm gonna walk through what the exceptions are real quick. The first one is adultery. And it refers to sexual infidelity in a marriage. When one spouse is sexually unfaithful, to the other. And we draw this exception from the Gospels themselves. This is um, found in Matthew. 
And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and by the way, by extension, husband, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The Pharisees, they asked Jesus, can we get divorced? And Jesus essentially says, no, except in this case, in the case of sexual infidelity. I do want to pause and say this, though. This is not a command from Jesus. It is a concession. He is not saying if there is sexual infidelity in the marriage, you must get divorced. He's saying you can. He is not saying you must. I'm sure there are marriages here that have experienced this. I want you, if you were the one that was harmed, if you were the one that was injured, if you were the one who was faithful, I want to encourage you that you pray that God would give you patience and strength and trust. And here's why. I think that God can repair anything that's broken. I've sat with couples as they're suffering through infidelity and as they've been reconciled. And I can tell you that in them, you can see a marvelous expression of grace and a profound proclamation of victory. The second exception is a little bit different. It's abandonment. And we have to look forward in our passage to get there. If we go to verse 15, we can read this. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Okay, uh, Paul is right now talking about marriages that are mixed, where there is one believer and one unbeliever. He's just told them, if your unbelieving husband or wife consents to live with you, then stay with them. And then he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. He's saying, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they desire to leave you, you must let them. That is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, let's not make it a nasty court battle. Don't tie them to the kitchen sink. Let them go. Let them go. This is not a concession, it's a command. Now, he says this important thing right here. He says, in such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. That is a reference to the person being able to remarry if they've been abandoned by their spouse. And I would say that applies to the case of adultery as well. If all that makes sense. Okay, I'm sure if you have questions, you can come talk to me afterwards. There might be other things we could talk about. People came up afterwards and asked really complex questions. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't know the answer to every question. I'm trying to tell you what I know to be true or what I really strongly believe to be true. 
There's other things we could talk about. But I, I really want to move on because I want to move on to the power of marriage itself. I'm always fearful to talk about exceptions to the permanence of marriage because I think sometimes it, it leaves us with the wrong question. Um, I want to ask the question, why should we stay as opposed to why should we, we go? Does, does that make sense when I say that? I, I think there is a beautiful and amazing picture of the gospel in marriage. I think there's something really profound and amazing there. If you imagine a play, you have actors who are acting out, let's say in this case, a real historical situation in the past. Which thing is the realer thing? The actors or the historical situation that they're portraying? Which one is it? That's correct. I gave you a really long-worded answer. The historical situation which they're portraying. You understand that, right? Both of them are real in a sense, but one is more real. Paul is saying that's how marriage relates to the union between Christ and his church. And he's saying the more real thing is Christ and his church, not our marriages. They instead convey and they point to the more real thing. Let me show you Ephesians real quickly, the famous passage about marriage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, and look, gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for, he, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one, then he says this, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul is describing marriage. And then he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I, uh, I love doing premarital counseling with young couples. I like when they come in for the first time and the husband-to-be is like sweating and nervous. Like I got my decline stamp. Decline. <laughs> I don't have one, in case you're wondering. I don't have a decline stamp. And I like to ask them like, why do you want to get married? <laughs> All the older couples are laughing. You guys already know. They're like, oh, we like really, really love each other. We like being around each other. I like the way that he or she makes me feel. We have a lot of shared common interests. We just have these great feelings around each other. I'm like, right? <laughs> I think you should marry someone you like, just to be clear. I think you should marry someone that you've fallen in love with. I think you should marry someone who you have common interests. I think you should marry your best friend, for best friend if possible. Here's the thing, though. I think, not I think, I'm certain, <laughs> as a society, we have reordered 
these two features uh, of marriage, and it's really detrimental for us. We have said, I think both in the church and outside the church, it's passion and then a promise. It's passion and then a promise. We meet each other, we fall in love, we figure out we have similar interests, we plan our wedding, we make a date, and then we make a promise as at like the end of this path of, of growing passion. And I want to say to you this, it is the other way around. It is promise and then passion. I'm not saying don't fall in love before you get married. I'm saying whatever love, if you are young and excited and about to get married, that you think you have now as real as it is, pales in comparison to the people who persisted for decades in marriage. Because true, authentic love, true, authentic married love is not what leads to a promise. It results from it. Because here's the thing. If your marriage is built on anything but that promise, it's in trouble. If your marriage is built on the idea of being attracted to each other when attraction fades, your marriage is in trouble. If it is built on the idea of liking spending time with each other, <laughs> the older couples are laughing, and that fades, your marriage is in trouble. If your marriage is built on some sort of financial arrangement and finances go like sideways, your marriage is in trouble. Listen to this. If your marriage is built on genuine companionship, and that fades because it can, your marriage is in trouble. If your marriage is built on feelings of love for each other, and that fades, your marriage is in trouble. We're all, like, constantly asking this question, how do we produce enough love to support a marriage? And I'm saying it's the other way around. It is your marriage that supports your love. If you let your marriage rest on anything other than the promise you made, it is in danger. Because there's two types of agreements. There are contracts and there are covenants. There are contracts and there are covenants. Contracts are the agreements that we make all the time. They're human agreements designed to protect our own interests. I make them with like the cable provider. I make them like as a rental agreement. When I buy a car, I make a contract with the person who's selling me the car and they're designed for everyone involved to have their rights protected. Covenants are not like this. Covenants are agreements where you say, I will be faithful no matter what you do. I will be faithful no matter how I feel. I will be faithful regardless of how well you love me. Covenants are 100% agreements regardless of the other person. When you go to weddings, there are vows, right? You guys know this? Just help me out. Let me show you're still with me. Are there vows at weddings? Yeah. I hope there are vows at your wedding. Check the video. You say for richer or for poorer, is that right? In sickness and in health, is that right? We should say happy or unhappy, fulfilled or unfulfilled, feelings of love or no feelings of love. None of you have ever been to a wedding where two people, a husband and a wife, are saying their vows to each other and they've got attorneys behind them ensuring that everything's even. It's never happened, right? Because covenants are self-divesting, self-sacrificial agreements you make. You say to the person you're going to marry, I am 100% in. 
regardless of what you do or what you say or how I feel. And here's why covenants are important. Covenants are important because that is the way that God has already loved us. I said marriage points to the more real thing. Marriage points to the more real thing because the Lord loves his people so much so that he gave his own son. Jesus gives up his own life for the church that he loves. And in marriage, you have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel in that way. The power of the gospel in marriage. The power of the gospel in marriage. To your unbelieving friends and family members, to your children, you don't have to just proclaim the gospel, you should. You can display it. Through the way that each of you dies to yourselves and was 100% covenantally in for your spouse. Amen? Lastly, gospel hope in discord. Gospel hope in discord. Read with me uh, verses 12 through 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Then in verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul says, I, not the Lord here. And the reason he says that is not because it's less authoritative, the first thing he said, the last thing he said was um, the Lord, not I. It's because he's referring to something that Jesus has already said. In this case, he's not. So he's just differentiating between those two things. It is still as authoritative as the other things he said. One of the things that has happened in early Christianity is it's spread rapidly. It's reaching cities and locations for the first time. And you have, I think probably unlike any other time in history, couples that are divided over faith, specifically Christian faith. You have a wife or a husband who hears about Jesus, calls on the name of Jesus, becomes a believer, gets baptized, attends a church, and then a wife or a husband who does not. We still have that today. But Paul's addressing them, and he's saying to them, if your husband who is an unbeliever, if your wife is an unbeliever, desires or consents to remain married to you, stay married to them. Then he has this thing, because so the, the unbelieving husband will be made holy by his wife, and the unbelieving wife will be made holy by her husband. The concern that the Corinthians had was purity. Uh, they knew that seeing a prostitute at the temple was defiling and it was a way to dishonor God and worship something else. And they were concerned, if, if I'm with my unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife, if we are engaged sexually, am I defiling myself? And Paul is saying to them, no, that's not what's happening. Instead, you as the believing partner you make holy your spouse. A really good comparison is found in the Gospels. Early in Jesus' ministry, he encounters a man with leprosy. In Mark 1. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. 
moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Leprosy was a devastating disease at the time that Jesus was ministering. It would not just be something that you could pass on in terms of a contagion, but it was also something that would render whoever you came in contact with ceremonially unclean. So all common knowledge, all intuition, all understanding of Jewish law and practices at the time would say if Jesus touched a man who had leprosy, he would become unclean. But that's not what happens. Jesus touches the man. The man says, I know you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I want to be clean. And he touches him. And the leprosy of the man does not invade Jesus. The purity of Jesus invades the man. That's what Paul is saying and is happening in these mixed households. Not that your husband or your wife who is an unbeliever is saved because you are saved. He is saying their unrighteousness does not invade the household. Your holiness does. He's saying your spouse has been given a front row seat to the work of God. Because there is nothing, really, truly nothing more powerful. There is no better argument for Christianity than a transformed life. There's not one. So you have in your daily life an opportunity to proclaim the greatness of God by the way that you conduct yourself. Then he says this. He says, how do you know wives that you will not save your husband? And how do you know husbands that you will not save your wives? He doesn't mean that the husband or the wife actually saves the other person. He means that God would save them. But he asks this hard question. He says, I know you're living with a spouse who's not a believer and you are anxious and you are concerned and you are worried. And I want to ask you, how do you know that God will not save them? Because God can work in someone's heart in a moment. He can change someone's heart in a moment. You might not even know it. He can do it. For those of you, whether you're in marriages that are mixed or whether you just have close family members or friends who are unbelievers and you labor over them and you pray over them and you cry over them and you wonder what is going to happen to them, two truths that bring me comfort as I think about people who are close to me that I want to see saved. One is this. God loves those people more than you do. God loves those people more than you do. The second is this. He is the only one able to save them. In these situations, really what it boils down to, the resource that, that grounds us, the thing that gives us hope, is trusting in God. It's why we sing, great is thy faithfulness. It's why our perspective is broadened. I realize that the situations that Paul is talking about are tense and they are difficult and many of you are in them right now. I don't want you just to think about these immediate passages. I want you to think about the entire context of the letter. Remember what it is that God has already done for you. Remember that he has resourced you now. Remember that your future hope is certain. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for the ways that you have provided for us. I pray for all those who are here right now, each in their own unique situation.
as they struggle to lean in and to trust in you. Pray that you increase their vision of the cross, that you strengthen their faith, that you brighten their hope for the future, that you remind them that although they are presently in a difficult spot, that you have provided for them, that you will provide for them, that they have hope in Jesus. For all these things in the great name of your son. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.